welcome to Stories of Impact. I'm your host, Tavia Gilbert, and along with journalist Richard Sergey, every first and third Tuesday of the month, we share conversations about the art and science of human flourishing. Only one week remains before the midterm elections in the United States. Before I vote on November 8th, I have some homework to do so that I can be sure to make informed and ethical choices in who I support. I know that the impact of my seemingly small choice will actually be significant. Each of our choices will be. And that's what today's story is all about. The impact we can have when we make informed ethical choices. At the end of this episode, you'll understand how much impact our informed and ethical choices as consumers in the West can have in the lives of apparel laborers in the East. Let's start with your first encounter with a worker thousands of miles away. It's when you buy apparel, a sweatshirt or a dress or a pair of shoes, in a store after it's worked its way through a massive global supply chain. A supply chain is a series of enterprises that work together to create a product or service, and each enterprise adds value at each stage of the supply chain. Ultimately, you know, as a consumer, we don't think about supply chains. You know, we'll click a button on Amazon and it'll show up at our door. But there's a whole series of entities, manufacturers, transportation providers, distributors, suppliers, and ultimately workers who transform that product into something that the consumer will eventually buy. My name is Robert Hanfield. I'm a Bank of America professor of supply chain management at North Carolina State University. I've been studying supply chains for about 35 years and they're constantly changing. They're constantly morphing. And you know, those supply chains, have they've been around for you know, centuries. The, the Chinese were the first to really develop supply chains on the Silk Road. For decades, experts across the globe have specialized in the study of supply chains. And in a time of accelerating globalization and information, there is a growing focus on the workers whose lives are most impacted by how ethical or not those who oversee supply chains choose to be. Today, we explore the concept of ethical apparel with two of those experts, researchers who are creating a way to give consumers valuable information about how the workers who are making those dresses and sweatshirts and shoes are being treated. But today we're starting to see technology that's bringing these entities much more closely together. And you know, this idea of sustainability is really permeating supply chain management right now. And consumers are actually starting to ask about what they call transparency. They want transparency in supply chains. They wanna know where their stuff came from. Until international trade agreements radically opened up the labor market and shifted manufacturing overseas, the apparel American consumers historically purchased was produced close to home. But then everything changed. The manufacturing of garments, which you know years ago essentially was outsourced to low-cost countries such as China, Vietnam, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, the Caribbean, a lot of those garments used to be made here in the United States. A lot of them were made in New York City. They had their whole garment district there for a while. But as labor costs rose, labor arbitrage drove the production to these lower cost countries. These countries that have low wages, they're often characterized by governments that kind of look the other way and really don't enforce 
the labor regulations and compliance regulations. And as such, the big brands are happy to use these countries and for a long time have been looking the other way. We've globalized our apparel industry all over the world. I think when that happened, people didn't really think about the human labor uh, and the human rights aspect. And we're primarily focused on this area because I think that's where some of the more egregious kinds of problems have started to pop up. When globalization of the apparel industry first began, consumers may not have initially thought about human rights. But today, they're increasingly aware that those profiting from the global supply chain have turned a blind eye to human rights abuses, including forced labor or unpaid labor, child labor, and discrimination, harassment, and violence in the workplace. Consumers are starting to push back against these abuses and to demand more information about whatever item they're purchasing and assurance that it was safely and ethically produced. For the last 20 years, it's become much more of an issue for consumers. They want to know that it was produced in a sustainable manner, that it was produced in a factory that respected the humans that produced it. Sustainability refers to two things. There's the environmental component of sustainability, being green. But then the second component is the human labor rights. What is the extent to which humans in the supply chain are treated in an ethical and uh, moral manner? and are given the basic rights that we would expect of any workers in the workplace. Dr. Handfield recognized that there was no answer to that vital question about the integrity of the supply chain. There was no way to measure how ethically or morally humans are treated. So, along with his partner in the project, he decided to solve that problem by creating the Ethical Apparel Index, which would provide consumers the assurance that their purchases would not make them complicit with human rights abuses. As a consumer today, there are just so many different labels, there's so many things that claim to be green, that claim to be sustainable, and we're often overwhelmed. And so we're trying to create a clear messaging system, a single tag, if you will, or a QR code, where a consumer, you know, before making that purchase, can look at that tag, either scan it on their phone or you know, simply glance at it, and are assured that, in fact, the garment was produced in a factory that respected labor and human rights. His partner in this global project, a researcher who was born and raised in the heart of the global apparel industry, has a personal and deep understanding about how the apparel supply chain has helped and harmed his fellow citizens. My name is MD Rajaul Hassan, and I work for Ethical Apparel Index at Poole College of Management and State University. I'm originally from Bangladesh, and by training, I'm a textile engineer too. When the U.S. and some of the European countries stopped producing, this order went to Asia. And I think that it started with Hong Kong, Japan, and then it slowly moved to Vietnam, China, and then Bangladesh, India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan. So in early 80s, the apparel industry in Bangladesh started, and it started like a mom and pop shops. So let's say someone who's never been in an apparel industry background or never have any experience with the apparel industry, he started probably 10 swing line and he started to sell it to the Western world. He has no idea how to run a factory, what is a factory and how it works. Then over time, in the last 30 to 40 years, he gained experience and his factory gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And today maybe he's some of the largest manufacturers in the world and he has probably hundreds of manufacturing lines with tens of thousands of workers. Some of them over time really learned it well and want to do a very serious business. So if you walk into those factories, those are really beautiful. 
very well maintained, very clean, very safe factories. As a result, you'll see in the news that Bangladesh is hosting most of the lead platinum certified factories in the world. But then the problem is throughout this time, there is also a lot more owners come into the business who want to just make money, who doesn't understand business, doesn't understand manufacturing facilities or anything. For them, it's just a way to make some profit. And they didn't learn how to upgrade their factory. They didn't learn how to ensure how to respect human being or labor forces. So you will still find some of the factories which are probably some of the craziest in the world in terms of safety, in terms of human rights, in terms of you will still find child there, you will still find forced labor there. So in the same country in Bangladesh, you'll find this whole spectrum where there's a fantastic factory, some of the world best, some are not so good and some are most terrible. What surprised me most is Let's say in the case of Bangladesh, we are already more than 40 years in the business and we are not in the ages where we don't know what the world is doing, what are some of the best practices and what is the way to really respect human labor rights. But still after that 40 years, I had a chance to walk into factories where I see the seven years old kids is working there. And to me, this is surprising. To me, this is something completely unacceptable and this is something we can definitely do better. And those factories with terrible labor conditions, they're making the brand name clothing you see every day. You might even be wearing some of that apparel right now. During my work experience, I have noticed severe violation of labor rights in the apparel factories. And it's not very country specific. I've seen this in Bangladesh, I've seen that in India, in Vietnam, in China, in Sri Lanka. They are all working for the similar buyers, like let's say for Walmart, H&M, Nike, Puma, Adidas, for all those big brands. While Western consumers have, for decades, fed their insatiable appetite for clothing made overseas, we've come to understand that our affordable apparel comes at a very high cost. For a long time, people have sort of maintained a psychological distance, you know, people my age, to say, I don't care what goes on, you know, around the world and some factory worker in Bangladesh. You know, they deserve whatever they're willing to pay and whatever I'm willing to pay. I think that sentiment is starting to change. Generally speaking, we're finding that younger people are more willing to pay. Young people in general, I would say young by me, 25 and younger, seem to be a lot more plugged into the idea of sustainability and seem to have a little more sense of social justice in terms of, yeah, I'm willing to pay a little bit more for this t-shirt. And it's, by the way, it's not much more. Uh, some of the early work we've done shown that for as little as eight cents for a t-shirt, you can get a t-shirt that's produced in an ethically manufactured fashion. What accounts for the generational shift? Social media, the internet, the news have all raised greater awareness of what's going on. And, you know, we see some horrible pictures of what's going on in some of these factories. And people are aghast. This is not okay. It's not okay to treat people like this. <laughs> You know, they're human beings, and we've got to treat them more as we would consider, you know, our sons and daughters to be treated if they worked in these factories, or our neighbor, or our neighbor's kids. And so I think there's a greater sense of humanity, and I'm, I'm an optimist, you know, and I, I believe that people want to do the right thing. More on that when we return in a moment. In an increasingly polarized and volatile world, a positive path forward is not always clear. 
The field of human flourishing provides insight into some of the world's most challenging issues by bringing together diverse scholars and applying rigorous science to understand how individuals, communities, and countries can flourish, even amid adversity. Join us November 29th and 30th for the virtual first annual Global Scientific Conference on Human Flourishing and participate in the dynamic conversation. To attend this can't-miss opportunity, register at humanflourishing.org. Whatever collective resistance there had been to seeing clearly what abuses workers had to endure was destroyed, along with the Rana Plaza factory when it tragically collapsed in Bangladesh. Rana Plaza was a garments factory, and in 2013, the building collapsed one day all on a sudden. And when the investigation was done, it was realized that the factory building was not safe. It was an unsafe construction. And the workers somehow realized that because there was a shaking in the building when the machines was opening and when the machine was running. But it looks like the supervisor and the factory owners were forcing them to stay inside the building and keep working. And that kind of sent the message of tremendous power imbalance and the lack of voice to the workers. And it's an incident where 1,134 people, if I'm correct, died in single incidents. And almost 3,000 people was like traumatized, maybe they lost their limbs, they're not anymore able to work. And it is considered as the, one of the world's largest mass manufacturing accidents, and then happened in just last decade. And when the investigation was done, it was found some of the largest retailers here in North America and Canada and European sites were sourcing from that factory, either directly or through a subcontracting unit. Right after that Rana Plaza incident, there was a huge media backlash, and of course, a civil societies, the NGO, the watchdog, they're all really, really furious about the situation. But to be very honest, as a practitioner, I was not surprised. I was that time part of the industry. But for the international community, it was come at like kind of a surprise for all of them. The Rana Plaza collapse was so gruesome, so anguishing, and the images so impossible to ignore that it captured the world's attention and demanded international effort to put in place safeguards so that such a disaster would never happen again. And there's two big intervention right after Rana Plaza. One is uh, Bangladesh Accord and one is Bangladesh Alliance. And Bangladesh Accord was more like the European brands. They come together and they say, well, here is our intervention. We all will keep funding and we'll work on the reformation and remediation of the safety of Bangladesh apparel factories. And then on the North American and Canadian, a lot of brands, they came together and they say, we are going to also fund the program to work on the improvement of the safety of the factories. Because of the Rana Plaza tragedy, Dr. Hassan was also inspired to respond. That was kind of my motivation, really, to learn these things a little bit better, to understand what's going on and how do we fix really some of this problem. And I came here all the way to U.S. to study here at NC State University because this is one of the largest schools for textile and supply chain and did my PhD. And during this PhD, I, I tried to dip down to some of those areas, why the labor violation, how it is connected to pricing, how it is connected to business model, and there are some interesting insights out of my dissertation. And we keep continuing working, actually, through Rob and the team. And then we realize that one of the most powerful stakeholders in this ecosystem is really consumer and investor. And these days, since Rana Plaza, I would say, and since the emergence of social media and an immense amount of transparency through the social media, now you cannot hide a story that is happening in Bangladesh or in somewhere. It's getting here in a second. 
We think there is really a strong leverage point we can activate by informing our consumer and our investors what's going on in the apparel supply chain, what's going on inside a factory, and what's happening in the life of a worker. And that was some of the initial idea how we really come up with this ethical apparel index. The mission of the ethical apparel index is around what I would call transparency and consumer choice. Our basic thesis is that given an option to purchase a garment produced in a ethical, sustainable manner, that consumers are willing to pay more to do so. By creating transparency, we're creating the ability of all of the parties in this extended supply chain to make decisions and to do the right thing. And we believe people will do the right things. To be clear, the Ethical Apparel Index isn't an audit of factory and human rights conditions. Factory assessments have been used for decades. But one challenge to transparency in the apparel industry is that the types of audits vary so widely. A brand might send an in-house team of auditors unannounced, and they'll spend several days doing a deep dive into the factory conditions, including interviews with workers. There might be a third-party audit with a company hired by a brand to do a one-day assessment. Or a factory might complete a self-assessment questionnaire. In addition to the variety of audits, there's another big challenge to factory transparency and safe, dignified working conditions for laborers. Factory tiers. There are several tiers of factories in these countries in the apparel supply chain. If you look on the face value of all the tier one factories, where the largest apparel and footwear retailer or the brand in the Western has a direct business contract, you'll probably see some kind of okay labor rights situation. So tier one are the factories which are making the garments or the final products, and they have a direct relationship with the brands and retailers. Again, the face value, it looks like fair because all of this brand has their own auditing system in place. And they only do the business when the audit is passed. A lot of these tier one factories has a subcontracting unit, meaning I'm a factory owner. I take order from Walmart, H&M, Nike, and through the back door, I can pass it to a subcontracting factory, which doesn't have a direct relationship with the brand, but which is still producing because I want it to produce there in the lower price to make some more profit. But you can go to the tier two, who produce the fabric or the raw materials for you, and you can go to the tier three, which is more like, let's say, spinner for making the fabric or maybe the cotton from. You can go to tier three, four, five, and you'll see a more severe conditions there. And the lower tier you go, it's more complex to connect it with the brand. I might have a slaughterhouse, which is supplying the cowhide to hundreds of brands. And many times I even don't know them because I don't directly sell it to them. Rather, they are being bought through a tier one factories. So the lower the tier you go, as I said, the higher the work rights violations are. And when I see severe violations, sometimes these factory buildings are not safe. Sometimes the workers are not paid minimum wages. Sometimes there is enforced overtime. And when you look at Rana Plaza incidents, it was actually one of those subcontracting units. Rana Plaza is evidence of the danger that subcontracted laborers face. Even when those subcontractors ultimately work for major brands that purport to do oversight through thorough audits. There were some garments in that building that belonged to major brands that had the brand label on it. Those brands were not even aware that that garment was being constructed in that particular building because it had been subcontracted to one of these smaller suppliers that was operating in a illegal and non-compliant manner. So Doctors Handfield and Hassan's Ethical Apparel Index is meant to answer the problem of countless kinds of audits 
and insecure, harmful, or deadly working conditions that are so prevalent throughout subcontractor relationships. We are not trying to create a new measurement scale. We are not trying to create a new audit standard. Rather, we are trying to take all the different audit out there. We are trying to extract those data and communicate through our index. What audit data does the index hope to make transparent to consumers? As of now, we come up with nine different elements, and the elements are child labor, forced labor, wages, working hour, health and safety, disciplinary action, discrimination, freedom of association, and employee relationship. So the standard like child labor ensured that there is no children working in the factory or there is no one working in the factory who is below a certain age group. In our case, it could be 14 to 18. We are not yet there to understand what will be the threshold. In some countries, children working is, is another income stream that can help feed the family. But generally, 14 is the cutoff. Any child below 14 is not allowed to work. For forced labor, it determines or it ensures that in a factory, there is no situation where a worker is working under a forced or pressurized situation. His documents is not confiscated, right? He's not, it's not a bonded labor. He's not under depth to work there. There are instances where people will be asked to turn over their passport and will have to work for three months and are given no option, and that's illegal and it's unethical. And then in wages, we at least want to ensure that the workers who are working in apparel factories are paid with the minimum wages, if not the living wages. And working hour is, there is an international convention, how much, what should be the working hour, and there are also debate in the apparel factories, it, whether it should be 60, it should be 78, but we want to make sure that at least it's abide by the local law in terms of working hour. Freedom of Association ensures that the factory worker at least has the right to join any group to represent them or represent their voices to the owner and to the whatever representative group that exists in that ecosystem, and they're not forced not to join. Many of the brands and factory owners don't want a union in their factory, but nevertheless, you still need to allow people the freedom to you know, develop a, a union, and it's illegal to prevent people from associating together. And with the disciplinary action, we make sure that if there is a situation in a factory, the workers are not hold against some unreasonable disciplinary action, right? I'm going to cut half of your salary because you did a mistake in the factory, that kind of situation. And discrimination is, we are not discriminating a regular female worker versus a pregnant worker. We are not discriminating someone based on race or color or whatever they believe politically or religiously, that kind of stuff. A environment that's free from harassment, sexual harassment or you know, bullying, migrant workers are often a target of that. And very often they're illiterate, so you can hire them, maybe pay them less than the minimum wage or you know, require them to work on conditions that are not okay. And then health and safety is at minimum it is that the factory building is safe, it's not gonna collapse in their head, and the working condition is somehow safe. It's not going to make a worker run into an injury, like maybe they're having an accident or maybe there is a, not the right temperature for them to work on. You want to make sure that the environment that they're working in has fire extinguishers, it has access to restrooms, it has a fire escape. You know, there's basic things that in that construction of that building that meets the minimum building codes, but also, you know, creates an environment where people have the, the basic elements that they need to be able to work in. An employee-employer relation is more like around the contract. 
because oftentimes we see the worker who are working in those factories doesn't have any official contract, so the owner can literally fire them at any moment without any compensation. So if there is a minimum contract put in place to make sure that there is a healthy relationship between the employer and the employee. Being able to accurately analyze those nine ethical elements relies on the quality of the audit collecting data. And as we now understand, not every audit is equal. Even the audits that aim to be most rigorous cannot be assumed entirely accurate. The auditors describe to us some of the challenges that occurred when they walk into a factory. They shared the fact that you really have to get to know the people. You have to spend time with them. You have to talk to them, the workers on the line. And, you know, very often they're coached. You know, they don't want to tell you what's really going on. But it's about building trust. And to me, I think there's really a, a social element to all of this as well, which is, you know, we have to be able to trust one another. We have to be able to share information with one another. And when we do that, then good things can come out of it. Like any other measurement, I think audit also has its own limitation, right? Many times the audit are not credible because maybe the auditors doesn't have the right experience because maybe the auditor didn't spend enough time based on the relationship of the audit firm of that factory. There is always a noise there. So while we are completely aware of the limitation about the audit data, we think this is the most comprehensive and as of now probably the best measure of the factory situation, even if it's a snapshot. Doctors Hassan and Handfield hope that despite imperfections in the audits, analyzing audit data across the nine ethical elements will one day enable investors, consumers, even the workers themselves to make informed decisions about whether they want to provide business financing, purchase an article of clothing, even accept an offer of employment. Through this ethical apparel index, we want to create a radical transparency. And when it's a radical transparency, we want the Western consumer and the investor community know exactly what is going on in the life of a worker inside a factory who is making our, our, our garments, our t-shirt, our dress, or our footwear. And I think through communicating what happens in their daily life and which is captured by an audit data, if we can bring that data, make an analytics and streamline that information and inform the consumer at the point of sale, also inform the investor community, maybe when they are going to endorse a certain brand and make an investment decision, we believe at least they were now aware, they're educated, they know what's going on, and then it's up to them how, what, what they make a decision, right, to endorse a brand or not. Our hope is to provide a, a good housekeeping seal of approval, you know, which will meet the requirements of these major brands and retailers. You really have multiple stakeholders. You have consumers, you have retailers, you have brands, you have manufacturers, and you have workers, of course. So we have to look at this whole ecosystem and say, well, how do we create information that's useful to all of them? And you know, we think that a factory grade can be useful to workers. Workers can decide if they want to work in that factory or not. The dream, like really the, our ultimate mission or vision, if you say, is one day we will be in a world where no brand who, who doesn't know what's going on in their supply chain, who doesn't endorse the ethical manufacturing, probably will not survive in the market. They have to change themselves. And if that happens, I think the workers they are working in those factories will be treated with much more respect, will be paid at least the minimum wages, will not be discriminated, will not have an unfortunate pay cut that would otherwise go to their mother treatment or their child education. So the, when, when that goes better and the workers are treated better, 
of course we will see a huge human flourish. Many of those people are making $100 and they have to work like 12 to 16 hours a day. So they're the people who are really in, in a tough life and making the clothes for all of us, make us all look beautiful. And all they deserves, I think, a respect and a minimum standard of living. Educating the consumer is a hard game, right? But someone has to start and some, they have to start it from somewhere. Not only will the Ethical Apparel Index, or the EAI, promote transparency about the apparel industry, it will promote the truth. Post Rana Plus, I think everyone is trying to move in a direction that they are maintaining the communication with their consumer and they're actively trying to convince them that we stand for sustainability and we stand for ethical manufacturing or ethical standard. Now the problem is, like the financial industry in the sustainability side, it's new. There is not a lot of regulations. Even regulators do not understand what is the right regulation to put there. As a result, there is a lot of greenwashing, right? That's where the brand need to do a better job, maybe through EAI, to say it's very data-driven. It's a third-party initiative. We need to hold the brand accountable because today it's very hard as a consumer for me to understand who is really doing the work, who is really investing their hard dollar versus who is not, who is just telling a story. There is widespread support for the Ethical Apparel Index, and it comes from some unlikely players in the global apparel industry. One of the biggest changes is that you're seeing financial investors, ESG investing or environmental sustainable governance is becoming a much more powerful force in the investment community today. And in the past, you know, financial investors didn't really look too deep. If you had a website and you had a code of conduct, uh, you were considered passing the grade. Today, they're asking for greater visibility, greater transparency. And uh, I think brands are recognizing that they have to really extend their visibility deeper into their supply chains. And that's starting to happen today. Dr. Hassan agrees. Today, the consumer, there is a huge emergence of impact investment in the investment ecosystem or the green investment. The investors are now more leaning towards the green investment and impact investment because you cannot afford to invest in a company where you don't know what's going on in the supply chain. You don't know if there is a labor rights violation. If that labor rights disruption tomorrow lead to a supply chain disruption and your product shortage, and that will hit ultimately your, your bottom line. So not just to be more sustainable and nice and nice to have, I think it's a solid business case. And investors understand that, that you have to invest in a company which is sustainable and which do the due diligence and which is producing their product ethically. We'll be back in a moment. Polarization is a complex issue that requires an interdisciplinary solution. The field of human flourishing seeks to help people live a holistically good life, encompassing well-being, living with purpose, and building character, which enables people to contribute to productive and harmonious communities. To learn more about this scientific research, join us November 29th and 30th for the virtual first annual Global Scientific Conference on Human Flourishing. To attend this can't-miss opportunity, register at humanflourishing.org. There are challenges ahead in the effort to increase transparency, analyze data, and move toward ensuring human rights for laborers. I think the biggest challenge is, you know, first of all, the data. It's a huge amount of data, and, and finding a way to ingest all this data and develop a framework for measuring it is going to be a big issue. Getting everybody on board, getting people to share their data is always a challenge. 
Finally, I think, you know, the ability to uh, get consumers to see this and buy into it is going to be a challenge as well. And even bigger resistant forces are at play. What is the business case to spend millions to understand what's going on in the lower tier of the supply chain? Geopolitics play a big role here, right? Post Rana Plaza, the way I think international community intervene in Bangladesh, I don't think we could have intervened the same way some of the other Asian countries. So how accessible that country is, how open the factories, how open the governments are, is another part that plays a key role in transparency, right? So I think resources, geopolitical issues, the complexities, the existing technologies, these are some of the big challenges when you want to be more and more transparent. Roadblocks to transparency thrown up by nations and global corporations will continue to keep apparel workers shackled. Handfield points to one chilling example of the continued prioritization of profit over people. As we know, cotton in China was being farmed uh, and processed. It's now become apparent by uh, slave laborers, the Uyghurs. And so there was a real backlash on the part of retailers. Well, the Chinese government was able to go in and say, we're going to shut down all of the H&M stores in China because of this H&M withdrew all of their criticisms and they opened the stores back up. This example shows how important the ethical apparel index could become. The EAI is necessary because so far, governments and nation states have largely failed to offer protections to their workers. We reviewed all of the different regulations that are out there. A lot of them stem back to the International Labor Organization, or ILO, which is part of the United Nations. And if you look at those regulations for the last 20, 30 years they've been around, and judge for yourself, they really haven't worked. I don't think we can rely on governments to regulate these problems away. It has to be a market-driven force. In the context of Bangladesh, India, Vietnam, China, and all the low-cost mass manufacturing countries, the local government doesn't want to put a high regulation because they want to keep it more welcoming to the international investment and international brand. The moment they raise the minimum wages, the moment they raise the environmental regulation, it becomes less attractive. They lose their competitive age. They want to do right things, but they're always keeping the regulations as low as possible to support the local manufacturing and the owners and international buyers. We believe in the power of the free market. And that's one of the fundamental of the EI to say, let's activate our consumer, let's activate our investor, who are the most powerful agent in this entire ecosystem, and then let's see what happens. Let the brand convince the investor, let the brand convince the consumer that yes, we stand for ethical manufacturing. And then it's not a regulatory, it's more market-driven initiative. With the development of the EAI, citizens who care about the impact of their purchase or their investment will no longer have to wait for the slow gears of government regulation to catch up to a society that cares more than ever about sustainability, both environmental and human you know, we're kind of turning the model on its head. We say, give consumers the freedom to be able to make that decision. It's a new idea that kind of underlies all of this, is the freedom of decisions and the freedom of individuals in the entire supply chain to do the right thing based on information that's available to them. And not only will the EAI offer consumers more power to make a difference with their dollars, it will provide a consumer-based regulation framework for scores of other industries that are equally dangerous and ambivalent about human rights. We are starting with the apparel and footwear industry, but the nature of apparel and footwear is very similar to some other low-cost mass manufacturing. If you look to the toy industry, 
if we look to some other maybe plastic industries, in some way I would say even light engineering industry, which is very labor intensive, which is very mass manufacturing and which is all over Asia. So I'm saying in Bangladesh, if you go to an apparel factory and you see a labor rights violation, most likely the next factory which is producing plastic or a toys or a bicycle have a similar situation because they are run probably sometimes by the same group, like the same owner, or they're at least under the same regulatory body. If we are successful with this initiative in apparel and footwear space, this can definitely sparse and we can definitely extend it to the other industries. There remains much work ahead before the Ethical Apparel Index and its adaptations for other industries are ready to roll out to a global consumer audience. But doctors Handfield and Hassan are committed to making it available to individual citizen consumers who are empathetic enough to recognize that they share hopes and dreams with workers worldwide. Well, you know, I think every, every worker has the same basic goals. They want to be able to make a living. They want to be able to make enough to have a safe home, to be able to feed their families, to be able to send their kids to school. They're not looking for an excessive wage. They're looking for enough to live and to live a happy life. At the end of the day, I think this is really an important part of what the Templin Foundation is trying to achieve as well, is to uh, you know, improve the lot of, of human beings, to, to make a better world. We hope that this effort will maybe play a role in, in helping to achieve that objective. The Stories of Impact podcast has offered me countless opportunities over the last few years to consider the strengths and limitations that are part of our Western culture. We in the West focus on ourselves as individuals to a degree that it moves beyond independence to an almost pathological rejection of community at times. But the flip side is that we recognize our power as individuals. We recognize the impact of our choices. We can make a positive impact in the lives of other human beings by making thoughtful decisions with our dollars. As we recognize that we are part of a global community and that all humans are striving for the same thing, safety, prosperity, peace, opportunity, and dignity. Thank you for being part of the Stories of Impact community. If you loved this episode, and if you love what you learn every other week, I'd really appreciate it if you'd help us grow our audience. As I've mentioned in past episodes, it's a scientific fact that most often podcasts are discovered through referral, when fans who love the show tell others about it. So please share the Stories of Impact podcast with other hopeful souls like yourself, so we can reach new listeners. And it makes a really big impact for us if you take a moment to give us a five-star rating and leave a short review. You can always retweet us and share our Instagram and Facebook posts. And if you want to go back and listen to past episodes, you can find all of our conversations on your favorite podcast player or at storiesofimpact.org. This has been the Stories of Impact podcast with Richard Sergey and Tavia Gilbert. Written and produced by TalkBox Productions and Tavia Gilbert with senior producer Katie Flood. Music by Alexander Filipiak. Mix and master by Kayla Elrod. Executive producer Michelle Cobb. The Stories of Impact podcast is generously supported by Templeton World Charity Foundation. <laughs>